0: If you can treat the launch of a hamburger the same way that they treat the launch of the latest Avengers film or Call of Duty, then you're really in the fabric of the customers because that's the
1: way they consume other brands that they love. What's happening, folks? This is your host, Alex Osterley, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Food Marketing Nerds. Today's episode is a little bit longer than usual, but it'll be worth it. I promise. We've got Richard Cran on the show today who is about to drop some serious advertising and branding knowledge on you. Richard's resume would make Don Draper jealous. Throughout his career, he's worked with powerhouses like Taco Bell, Nike, Audi, Samsung, and Harley-Davidson, just to name a few. Over the past several years, and most relevant to you guys, Richard was the VP of Marketing Communications for Jack in the Box, where he headed up campaigns impressive enough to make it into Facebook's quarterly earnings reports. He's joining us on the show today, having recently started his own agency called The Ad Hoc, which we will get to hear a little bit more about in a minute. On this episode, you're going to learn what iconic brands do to truly differentiate themselves, how to measure the direct impact of your social media campaigns, what it's like working with the biggest influencers in the game, and so much more. So sit back, grab a pen and paper, and get ready to learn. Welcome to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast, where we talk marketing, branding, and social media with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Alex. It's good to be here. So can you tell our listeners just a a little bit about yourself and your career and what you're up to these days?
0: Sure. Yeah. Until recently, I was the vice president of marketing communications at Jack in the Box here in beautiful, sunny San Diego. Prior to that, most of my career or a lot of my career has been working in advertising agencies here in Southern California, in Australia, in the United Kingdom and in Southeast Asia, most notably Singapore. During that time, I've spent an awful lot of time working with restaurant brands. So I just mentioned Jack in the Box. I've also spent time working with Taco Bell, TGI Friday's, El Pollo Loco, and Zoe's Kitchen. So that's kind of really where I've built my exposure to restaurant brands and developed some of the ideas I have on how to market restaurant brands and food brands
1: effectively. And you said previously you'd worked on brands like Nike, Audi, That's right. Yeah. I mean,
0: uh, yes. So I've really been working on those restaurant brands for for about 12 or 13 years since I've been here in the United States. During that time and prior to that, I was lucky enough to work with a a lot of other brands. So, yeah, Nike was one, Under Armour, Audi, Harley-Davidson, Hyundai, a couple of airlines, British Airways, Singapore Airlines, Qantas, some really fantastic destinations, Vale Resorts, New Caledonia Tourism, to name a few. And then also a lot of packaged goods brands, Bolthouse Farms, Atkins, Linton Sprungly Chocolates, Whiskers, um, Lita Coffee. So really just a broad range of categories and brands, some really, really big, some very small, low-budget challenger brands.
1: And so uh, those are some of the most iconic brands that you named off. What are some of the similarities that you've seen or that you've been able to... Bring from some of these most successful brands that are out there to the clients that you've worked with after the fact, and Jack in the Box.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think, and it's funny. It can sound a little bit obvious, but the brands that are really successful, the brands that you know we think of as great brands, are invariably brands that have a great product that people love buying and using. But people are buying more than the product when they buy that product and that brand. Probably the best example I can think of off the top of my head, I, I spent some time working with Audi in Southeast Asia. Really, when Audi sort of became mainstream, I suppose, if you call a luxury car brand mainstream, when we launched the TT and the A3 and the A4, and after that, other clients would ask me, you know, well, what was it? What made it great? What was it that made that brand, you know, so special? What drove their success? And, and at the core of it, it was always a great product, but what was really kind of the accelerant was a brand that meant something and had an identity and that gave people a reason to have that product in their life beyond just the functional use that they made of that product. So I think, I mean, if you look at restaurant brands, fast food brands, food brands, there's probably a million restaurant brands in America at the moment, but not all of them are successful. And and, you know, you look at one that starts with a couple of guys, I have a good friend who just started a specialty hamburger restaurant in Dallas, he's got two. And I'm pretty sure that it's going to be more than two pretty quickly. And yet there are some restaurant brands that never make it past mum and pop's restaurant, which is totally cool. But really what kind of pushes them is finding that unique thing, that experience that the brand can provide that makes it different from all the other brands, whether those are restaurant brands, car brands, sporting brands, technology brands. It's There's an experience that I want when I consume that product. And that's the real special thing that makes the great brands great.
1: So from a marketing and communication standpoint, Is that coming from an internal, maybe inside the four walls experience? Or are you more focused on or were you more focused on the the different mediums and uh, I guess the the outbound advertising and uh, PR side?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, look, my role was predominantly speaking with engaging with customers. So through advertising, social media, PR, merchandising, all that kind of stuff, experience events. But when I talk about experiencing the brand, jack in the box we had a very unique menu. Yes, there were hamburgers, but there were things on that menu that you didn't find in other fast food brands. And it wasn't just that, though. There was something special about the way the brand's personality had been built. But there was also something about the way when you came into one of the restaurants or when you came through the drive through that it was different from other places. You know, Chick-fil-A is another great example. They, their food is really quite different from anyone else in QSR. But it's also the way they speak to you, the way they treat you, the way they package everything up. It's all the experience. So it, it is the advertising is kind of the pointy end of that, I suppose, because it's more often than not the first thing we see. But if that positive experience is consistent from every part of it, then that brand and that product means something in my mind. And it's easy to remember it. And I and I remember it fondly and, and clearly. So I think when I talk about brands that give you some experience, it's, yeah, certainly inside the four walls of a restaurant, but it can just be inside the four walls of the paper bag you take out of the drive-thru.
1: That's interesting. You're, you're kind of transitioning out of your role with with Jack in the Box now. What are, what are you focusing on in the meantime?
0: Yeah, good question. You know, there's, a, there's a, a lot of really interesting things happening in branding and marketing at the moment that exist within restaurant brands and food brands. And that's not just restaurant brands. When I say food brands, you know, I think of grocery brands, retail grocery brands. I think of packaged goods brands, very traditional things that I can get. You know, I look at what Bolt House Farms are doing and Naked is doing with juices and dressings and things like that. But there's a place where I think marketing and technology and call it popular culture are intersecting now more than ever and part of that is social media and part of that is, you know, we all have a mobile phone in our hands these days but the question, where am I working now, where am I going, really exploring that place and helping other brands really come into that place more fully. If you're going to be a part of a customer's life, which I think ideally every brand wants to be, regardless of the decision purchase, you know, how long it is, Every time I think of that brand, if I think of it positively and I engage with it positively, then the possible repertoire of brands I consider narrows. I mean, fast food's a great example. I I might be lunchtime and I might think there's 10 brands I can pick from. But if two or three of those brands pop for me more and mean more to me and kind of live as a part of my daily life, then those are the two or three brands I'm going to go to more often than not. And the same is true for cars. You know, I mean, I might drive a Toyota, and I might only think about purchasing that car every three to five years, but I get into the thing every day. And so, you know, that place where the brand and the product and the technology that I live with every day, and then how those things connect with my life, call it popular culture, just call it context. That's a really interesting place that I don't think, you know, I think there's a lot of brands that have really got it, but there's an awful lot more brands that haven't quite figured it out yet. And that's a place that I'm spending some time helping some brands get to.
1: And using Chick-fil-A as an example, you've got this great packaging, the great customer service, but then outside of the actual restaurant experience itself, how can restaurants who aren't taking advantage of that have more of a, a play in their customers' daily lives?
0: I think the simplest answer is social media. The slightly more complex answer is social media and local marketing. A great example, a brand out of Texas, Zoe's Kitchen, that you know really has built itself. I think it was one of the fastest growing restaurant brands over the last five years. And what they've done an incredibly good job of, and it's a family restaurant, You know, it's a place that is healthy Mediterranean-influenced food that really is, is about sitting down and eating with the family. And they don't really do television advertising, they've got a pretty robust social media program, connecting predominantly to mums, you know, kind of healthy mums and mums who want to feed their family good food, and it is predominantly mums, that's not kind of a sexist thing, it can be mums and dads, but that brand tends to connect best with women. But they also do an awful lot of local marketing. So every time a restaurant opens, before it opens, they engage with the parent groups at every school within a three to five mile radius of that restaurant. They go out to the chambers of commerce. They connect with local businesses. You know, They find local Lions Club, local Boys and Girls Club, and they become an active part of the community as part of their opening. So when they open... They're already a part of the fabric of the lives of the people that they want to come to them. Now, that's accelerated and that's kind of made more modern by the way they use social media. But that's a really good example, I think. I was really impressed when I worked with that brand that that's the way they kind of market themselves. They recognized that social media was great. It put me in front of you regularly, but being part of your community when you are a family person was more important. Chick fil A, same thing, you know, they and, and in and out here is an example, but Chick-fil-A particularly when it's come to the West Coast increasingly in the last five to ten years, they'll put signs up on the lot when they're building the restaurant, they'll have food brought out from somewhere else and put it into local youth soccer groups or, you know, little league baseball events or whatever it might be, and they make it really clear that they're coming and by the time the doors open, there's a line of cars and people around the block as if it's a you know, a movie premiere on an opening weekend that's really interesting stuff and that's a combination of good old-fashioned knock on doors and leave flyers under the windshield wipers to capturing data when someone logs onto social media and then being able to post them a you know behaviorally targeted geo targeted ad when they're within a two mile radius of that new restaurant that's a really interesting space i think
1: clearly you can see that it's paying off for companies like in and out who are going and having these ridiculously long lines the day that they open but I feel like some of those are, are extremely difficult to measure and quantify the success, especially social media. Uh, yeah. I know ads are a bit more direct in what you can measure. How do you go about measuring those kinds of initiatives and how did you add Jack in the Box?
0: Yeah, uh, look, I mean, it, you'd be surprised. I actually think in this day and age, social media was probably easier to measure in a real way, in a meaningful way than television. You know, television... There's all the Nielsen ratings and that kind of stuff and and those, you know, really robust numbers behind them. But social media, and we did a big project at Jack in the Box with Facebook. It was a foot traffic study. There were digital identifiers in every restaurant. And by working in close partnership with Facebook, we were able to identify somebody who had liked a post or shared a post, follow them through cooking and, and all that kind of stuff to a search for a restaurant near me or a find me on an app, uh, you know, search restaurant or search jack-in-the-box. And so then when they came into the restaurant, we were able to see all of that that journey they'd taken to come to us. So there's a lot of analytics in the back end that, you know, the really great social media brands, and it's not just Facebook, but I think Facebook are amazing at it. Google does a lot of work in that space too. You know, the whole Google Analytics team is really strong. But so too, you know, Snapchat, all of, all of the social media now, it's the visibility they give you into the engagement their followers have with them that is actually the really powerful thing for marketers to, to understand. And if people aren't leaning into that, those organizations love clients. I mean, I was lucky, you know, I've, I've been able to go and spend a couple of days up on the campus at Facebook and a couple of days up on the, the campus at Google just spending time with them, learning about what they're doing and, and being more than just an advertiser. So those big social media brands, they know that they've got to be responsible and they love building that kind of data for people. So it's actually probably more, it's probably easier to track that stuff now than people realize. Hmm. It's not just a matter of likes and shares and you know visits to websites. There's so much more you can capture now.
1: That kind of segues into my next question of just the different and emerging marketing opportunities out there. Are there any channels that you are really excited about that you think are being underutilized?
0: Yeah, uh, there are. I think probably less an individual channel and more the intersectional, the integration of channels. You know, I think I look at the opportunity to connect a TV commercial with a social media page or a social media program that you precede with press and influences before a launch and you capture all of that data and, and funnel it through. You know, there's it's that, that really meaningful connection of all the channels is really powerful. I think a lot of the stuff too that probably is just starting to be used more broadly. You know, if you can create an experience, and that might be at an existing experience, you might participate at something like Comic-Con, you might sponsor one of your local um, MLB teams, or you might sponsor a local high school college team or something like that, or a a, a high school event. Most of these things today, you can take that physical experience and pretty easily and cost-effectively build some form of digital engagement around it. I think that's made possible because of smartphones in everybody's pockets. And though I think a lot of brands are doing a lot of work in that space, I, I, think, I just feel like we've really only started to scratch the surface of what we can do when we understand how, how to encourage customers to invite us into their life and onto their phone and into their social media and then bring it to life in a physical way. I think that's something that you know really good brands are doing, but not as many brands as could be doing it they're doing.
1: One of the things I I love about Jack in the Box and and the approach to just marketing and advertising in general is it seems like the executive team there is really progressive as far as, or at least on board with trying new things. For example, I'd seen a a Facebook ad targeted to me about, uh, it was a a Canvas ad, Mm -hmm. and I'd had the it had a, a virtual reality piece to it where you can move your phone. You, it was it was like you were a person sitting in a bar and uh, Jack was the, the bartender who comes up and hands you a burger. How do you get everybody on board? How, can you can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I can. Look, I, I think part of that, the answer to that is what you said. I think the, the executive team, the leadership team at Jack in the Box are very progressive. It's a great place. There's a great culture. They really encourage innovation and I wouldn't say they encourage cause risk taking because risk that, that phrase risk-taking always sounds like it's a little bit of a leap of blind faith, Right. but there's a real culture there and I think in a lot of other great brands today, and you know, P&G is an example with the work they did with Old Spice, to say, okay, we're willing to try new things. Help us understand what the business problem is that this is going to solve. Help us understand the benefit to the business of what you're doing. Help us understand where the That benefit might just be learning, that benefit might be sales, that benefit might be data capture. Help us understand what the projected benefit is. Help us understand how you're going to get there and how this approach, this innovation, this technology that you're using is going to bring it to life. And then I think with Jack in the Box, there's always, you know, there's a thread. That brand has a very clear personality. One of the great joys of working at Jack in the Box is getting to work with Jack Box, the founder of the brand the guy with the big head that people have seen on television for 22 years. And that brand's personality, as it's exemplified in Jack, is also a way to say things. You say, look, this brand is about being West Coast, being a little bit maverick, zigging a little bit when everybody else zags. And as long as we do it in a knowing, slightly self-referential, smile way, then it's consistent with the brand. And then here's all the functional, rational reasons behind it. That VR video was a strategic sell. We wanted to get the press involved before the launch. We wanted to get them excited. Particularly, we wanted to get out to the press in New York, which we hadn't done before. But we wanted them to feel the same experience, see the same world that consumers were going to see on television a week after the press events. And so it was pretty obvious and pretty logical that virtual reality was a great way to take individual journalists and influencers who were coming into our pr firm's office you know in ones and twos sit them down put the goggles on them and make a very real kind of back that word, very real experience for them that they hadn't had before that was consistent with the experience that other consumers were going to get a week later so that wasn't a really hard one to pitch to the president of the company she you know we had a very clear sense of what we were going to do and why it was going to be beneficial and how it was going to advance the business and you know, she, Francis is her name, Francis Allen, the president. She's very smart, very brave operator who recognizes, you know, let's try things. And, and at the very least, we'll learn. And at the very best, the business will grow as a result. Things like that, that jack in the box aren't really hard. But I think to take that out to other companies that might not have that kind of leadership team, it's probably not about taking uneducated risks, but it's about finding a way to build a business case to do something that might be different from what you've done before and might be uncomfortable. But if the business case makes sense, then why wouldn't you do it? If you can make it seem obvious and almost foolproof, then it's difficult for people to argue with it.
1: So how did that all end up?
0: That ended up great. We shot the v- the, the VR, the virtual reality video, We released it to the press in in LA and in New York about a week and a half before we launched the real meat of the campaign, the TV and the out-of-home. Between the two, between the press event and the the main media launch, we had a social media influencer event actually down at Jack in the Box, where again, we created a pop-up brew house actually in the parking lot at Jack in the Box. We built a tent and laid a wooden floor and had a mural artist paint a facade around it so it looked like a lovely red brick bar somewhere. Uh, somewhere probably in New York or Chicago or something like that. And we invited a whole bunch of influencers on stage to special launch and had you know, some social media people broadcast it live. In fact, that event was the first time anybody had launched a product live in real time on Facebook Live. So again, you know, lots of firsts along the way at Jack in the Box and in some of those projects. It worked out really, really well. You know, the impressions that we got through the press release and the social media influencer event were in the hundreds of millions. Wow. That product had an awesome opening weekend um, and continued to mix really high and just be a really great seller for the brand. So part of the story we told around things like that is trying to to bring some of the behavior out of category. And so if you think about the way a movie is launched or a video game is launched, a big video game, you know, they desperately want a big opening weekend and then they want a lot of buzz before and afterwards, and so you use the press and you use social media and you create events and you do bits of teasing content. And if you can treat the launch of a hamburger the same way that they treat the launch of the latest Avengers film or Call of Duty, then you're really in the fabric of the customers because that's
1: the way they consume other
0: brands that they love.
1: And it sounds like PR and social media need to go hand in hand.
0: I think so, yeah, I I think so. And I think a lot of companies still struggle with PR you know, a lot of companies kind of have PR there just in case they have a, a disaster. You know, someone drives a truck into one of their stores and they need to deal with it, or or someone gets sick or something like that. PR, when used well, and, and there's so many good PR firms out at Jack in the Box. We work with a great firm that you know we did a lot of fun launches with the press, and and they started to love it. The last launch we did when I was there was for Brunchfest, the new kind of day part menu that we launched, and the TV again, the TV commercial to try and bring to life someone's extreme cravings showed Cricket, Jackbox's wife, (laughs) suffering from extreme pregnancy cravings for a kind of food that you would normally get at brunch, but she felt like it at nine o'clock on a Tuesday night. And so again, the fun way that we brought that to life, that we created an experience for the press, we staged a baby shower. We had a brunch baby shower on a rooftop up in LA and invited all the press and social media to come along. And again, it connected to the social media that we teased beforehand. And then we captured a lot of content. We actually did that live on Snapchat while we were doing that event. And we pushed a lot of it out through Facebook and through our Twitter account and through Instagram. And and then the kind of traditional media followed up, but the theme was all the same and it was all grounded in truth of the product. So no matter who we were talking to, whether it was the press or social media influencer or social media follower or someone walking to a restaurant, they all saw and felt the same thing. And it, it just makes every dollar work two or three times as hard. So yeah, I think using PR to generate energy before launching something in parallel with social media yeah maybe that is that's maybe that's another answer to one of your earlier questions here. what are things that are underexploited i think i think again some brands do it well not all brands and i think that's probably the place that we try really hard is to see what are really interesting brands doing that aren't in our category you know there's a lot to be learned from entertainment brands there's a lot to be learned Surprisingly, from packaged goods brands, you know, Oreo is doing some amazing things. Dove has been doing incredible things for a long time. Everybody thinks about what Old Spice has done, but there's a lot of other packaged goods brands doing similar things that people kind of dismiss because they just think they're grocery brands. I think you've got to look outside the restaurant category to find interesting things and then bring them back. How do I take that and adapt it to solve my immediate problem of getting people to come and buy my hamburgers, chicken burgers, pizza, whatever it might be? And you look at those brands, they use press, they use PR and social media in combination an awful
1: lot and I, I know a lot of them are leveraging these these influencers which is almost a form of pr and distribution i mean it mm-hmm. is a form in itself and some people it doesn't quite click with the the cost of of working mm-hmm. with some of these influencers can you speak to that a little bit i mean some of these guys are pulling in a hundred thousand dollars to do an appearance you've got that
0: yeah you've got the <laughs>
1: logan paul's and the king box these guys are yeah, A-list look, I mean, influencers, but...
0: Yeah, we I mean, and it's a really good point. I mean, we did a lot of work at, at Jack with social, with influencers. And, and I remember having to explain it to our franchise community as to, you know, because they're always looking at every dollar that we spend. So the answer was, again, those influencers, whether it's Kylie Jenner or PewDiePie or Dame Drops or Miranda Sings or Danny Burke, whoever it might be, They have fans for a reason, and those fans love what those people do and what those people present. In the middle of a busy day, two and a half minutes watching one of Miranda Sings' songs, it's an interesting sentence, (laughs) uh, it's two and a half minutes of uh, a smile and a chuckle and a wink at somebody else and sharing it you know, either with your phone or over social media. That's a little bit of fun in the middle of what for a lot of people is a busy day. And so the money that you can pay to some of those people, I think if you find the right people that can connect with your brand authentically – you know, in a real way, I, I think it, you actually get great value for money. I mean, I, the, you know, I, I stood up at a franchise council meeting and said, look, some of these people are bringing us two, three, five, six, nine million fans every week, every month, every quarter, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And we're, we might be paying, I'm making up a number here, $100,000 to produce this piece of content with that person. But $100,000 for nine million followers is a lot less than you'd pay for nine million eyeballs on television.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so I you know I personally think if you pick the right people and if they are really active and engaged and you know that's a great way to become part of the fabric of the lives of your customers because those those people already are the fabric of your customers lives those are people that your customers have invited into their phone and their life and their social media those influences are somewhere that you want to be so you know in my mind those sums of money aren't too high unless you just ask them to slap your product on something they're already doing. And that's where I think you've got to come back to, you know, we did a lot of work with influencers to create original content or to kind of just make sure that they actually liked our brand. People that we worked with, we made sure they actually did like our hamburgers and curly fries and tacos and ate them. And and that was always one of the first things we screened for.
1: So definitely the context of of what they're doing is is a major, major determining factor of the success rate.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think the brands that try and fail are the brands that try and tell those people what to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I mean, a, a great example, and well, you're going you might have to edit this out afterwards. I'm sure you're aware. There's a, a great uh, a F Jerry, F Jerry, oh, yeah. uh,
1: F Jerry for listeners. Uh, <laughs> I, it, you know. I know the the biggest social media influencers are the ones that have the names that are the most awkward yeah, to say. You, like,
0: you have to. St- I had to stand up in front of a board meeting and work my way around that. <laughs> I actually had F Jerry actually give me permission to refer to him by his real name so that I could talk about him in a board meeting. Yeah, he's a bit edgy and a bit risque. And I remember that the first time we really used Jerry, it was for a product launch, I want to say like February last year, actually. It was around when we did uh, Declaration Delicious, which was our burger improvement program. And we had, again, a social media influencer event, this time up in Santa Ana. And I was up there with my then CMO, and I'd introduced him to Jerry, and we had a bit of a chat. It was all good fun, and a lot of other social media people. And He and I were standing in the line to get our car, and one of the other executives at Jack in the Box sent him a text that captured the post Jerry had had posted in the event, and it was pretty risque, (laughs) and so the other executive sent it to, to the CMO and said, are you aware of this? You know, what is this? And the CMO, to his credit, he instantly sent a note back saying, yes, I'm aware of it. Isn't it great? You know, you've got to have the courage to let those people do what they do. Otherwise, there's no point in working with them. And if you're uncomfortable working, you know, with someone called Jerry, and if you're uncomfortable with the kind of content he posts, then he's not the right person for you. There's someone else for you. But just don't go there and then try and make him change to fit you that then you'll lose the people that love him. And that's hard for corporations. They're used to being able to tell people what to do.
1: Yeah, I agree. And so what is your opinion on Snapchat?
0: Uh, You know, look, I think it's a really, really interesting thing. I think it's come from, you know, almost come from nowhere. It's growth has been a fraction of the growth of the time of, of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, that kind of stuff. I think brands are still figuring out how to really use it well. I think it's still kind of a user platform first. Clearly, people love it. People love using it. It's fun. It provides a different experience from some of the other social media. It's more immediate. It's more instantaneous. It's a little bit more irreverent. It kind of combines a little bit of the old Foursquare with a little bit of Facebook and a little bit of Instagram kind of all rolled into one. I think it's really interesting. I think it's a really great platform. I'm not sure a ton of brands have entirely figured it out yet. You know, there's lots of geo filters that I can lay on top and there's lots of keyboards and emoji that I can put in that kind of stuff. I, I feel like that's just scratching the surface of how to connect with customers through that medium.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a tough one because it's… Uh obviously the younger generations love Snapchat, but it is tougher for brands. And unless you're doing a, I think the sponsored geo filters for, for a day or what, Mm -hmm. almost pushing a million dollars and like $750,000. So there's a high cost of entry. Yep. But yeah, that's where, that's where the eyeballs are.
0: Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I do remember, I mean, I mentioned Foursquare before, it's not that long ago. We were doing a project for another restaurant train and part of, the purpose of that project was to come in and create a layer of communication below their traditional television and build the kind of what we were calling an always on platform for them. And this isn't that long ago. This is maybe six years ago. And at that point in time, Foursquare was one of the key things because you could check in. And if you became the mayor of that particular restaurant, you got a seat and a cup just for you kind of thing. (laughs) And now, you know, I think Foursquare is just trying to reinvent itself. So who knows, maybe Snapchat will be gone in two or three years time. Maybe it won't, but I think while it's here, there's a challenge to figure out how to work with it more effectively than I think brands have been able to so far.
1: And that kind of leads me in, same with you look at Vine being shut down by Twitter, which is yeah. pretty crazy. I'm sure all the influencers that were getting their main source of income from Vine were just freaking out. Yeah. It's Same with the brands that have built such a huge platform yeah. on there. How do you guys go about, or how did you go about assessing a social media platform to see if it was if it was right for you guys? Because there are so many that pop up on a regular basis.
0: Yeah, good question. I mean, Periscope's a great example. We did some really early work with Periscope. And I think, you know, I'll give some credit to the social media guys at Jack in the Box and the social media strategists at our partner agencies. Every year when we would assign our budget for social media, you know, you'd start by allocating a portion based against what calendar activities you knew you had to support. And then, you know, what were you doing just to be always on? And what were you doing to drive lifestyle? You know, all the different layers that you would use it in. But we always just apportioned a sum that was going to enable us to experiment with one or two new platforms throughout the year, and that was how we did it. So, you know, Periscope, we we did a launch of a product in real time on Periscope, and we got some good traction. But we thought it was more just because it was a bit of a novelty, and you know, I think it probably was because Periscope's not really that you know kind of thing anymore. It didn't become that thing, I don't think. So, you know, the way we did it was we had our our base of things that we always did, and that's different for every brand. Some brands' customers want to connect through Twitter. Some brands' customers want to connect through Instagram or Pinterest if they're a really visual brand. Some fans want to connect through YouTube if there's a lot of video that surrounds that brand. I think once you define what your core is and what works for you, A, pushing those ones and trying to find new ways to use them is important. Honestly, it's a budgeting thing. You've got to budget to try some things and be prepared that they might not work because that's
1: how you learn. Right. And I've heard people's theories on you need to create all these different types of content because there are so many different people out there and certain ones like to consume content one way. Others like to consume it a different way, whether it's visually on Instagram through just imagery or YouTube with a video. Do you have an opinion on editorial content for restaurant brands? How do you mean editorial content? Like, like, um... like blog content? If you're talking
0: about a blog from a brand, so let's say Burger King decided it was going to have the Burger King blog, I think you'd have to give customers really good reason to go to that blog. I think you'd have to give them really good content and I think you'd have to give them really good content that they weren't getting through any of your other social media. But I think if you connect with bloggers who then play the same role as influencers, I mean the blogger kind of is the journalist of the social media world almost, then I think they do have a place. We did a lot of work with food bloggers at Jack in the Box. Whether that was a version of food blogging that you might say the guys at Food Beast do, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of video, or whether it's more traditional food blogging where it's actually written content in a more kind of traditional journalism sense. We did that as well. I think it's, it has a role. I'm not sure I would ever advocate on behalf of a restaurant brand starting its own blog, if that's what you're asking.
1: Yeah, I, I was just curious, uh, Taco Bell one of the things that the reason I was initially interested was their, their feed the beat or their, it was the feed where they do Buzzfeed style posts where it was like yep. 17 people who got prom pictures taken at Taco Bell and things like that. So I, I, that was just interesting.
0: Yeah. I think, I, I think to me, that's more just content. I mean, they were pushing that out through other social media channels and look, Taco Bell is an interesting beast. I, I got a big smile on my face here. I love <laughs> that brand. It's kind of, it was the first restaurant brand I worked on and, And it's still one of the great brands I've worked on. Some of the smartest people I've worked with 13 years ago at Taco Bell, and some of them are still there today doing awesome stuff. That's a really amazing brand. That brand challenges and pushes and breaks and fixes constantly. You know, I give them their credit. We used to kind of be a little frustrated by them at Jack in the Box because they'll do something like say, we no longer have a website. If you want to come and find us, it's on our Facebook page. That's it. And then maybe that experiment didn't work. And so six months later, lo and behold, they've got a, f- a website back again. <laughs> so they do a great job of championing and talking about their innovation. But when things don't work, they never talk about them. So <laughs> I love I love their willingness to experiment and be out on the edges and see if stuff sticks. And then if it doesn't stick, I get a sense people don't lose their jobs if they try something at Taco Bell and it doesn't work as long as they move on and, and take a learning from it and try it somewhere else. I think that's really brave and really... Uh, really bold and again there's just there's some super smart people working at taco bell
1: mm-hmm. i agree tell us a little bit more about your what you're working on now it's ad hoc is the it's virtual agency
0: yeah yeah we've kind of had it going uh, for a couple of years about three years and and look it was born from my days in agencies when i realized there's a lot of brands out there that are either really really big and have one agency two agencies three agencies but still like to be able to get fresh perspective or might, you know, their their resources might be overworked because they've got a big project on and and those brands like to have someone they can call on just to come in kind of like a flying squad, you know, a a plane full of smoke jumpers to dive in and fix a problem and get out of the way. Or there's a lot of, you know, smaller brands that maybe can't afford the traditional agency, agency of record model with head counts and, 12-month rolling budgets and contracts and all that kind of stuff. And I just found I did a, I was doing a lot of new business, what, what agencies called business development, meeting a lot of clients and, and working with everybody from TGO Fridays and Chrysler down to kind of startup brands like Carvana.com. And some of those startup brands either didn't want a traditional ad agency because they didn't think it was going to provide the service they needed, but they wanted the kind of strategic and creative thinking that they'd get. Some of those brands didn't want to hire an agency, meet all these senior people in a pitch and then be handed off to junior people later on. And some of them, you know, I mean, great example, worked with Chrysler at the point in time and they were doing Super Bowl ads and they had three or four really big agencies all trying to come up with a couple of Super Bowl ads. And they just wanted more ads to look at. So they hired a couple of other agencies just on a kind of three or four month contract. And so out of all of those things. You know, my business partner and I had this this idea that if you can find a way to live without requiring clients lock you into a 12-month contract, then you actually provide the nimbleness and the flexibility that most clients actually need that's really hard to get from traditional agencies. And so then the challenge was how do you, how do you provide that nimbleness and how do you live and operate without the safety of a 12-month contract? And the answer is pretty obvious. You just have zero overhead. And in this day and age, you can have zero overhead or maybe not zero, but a very low overhead between Skype and Basecamp and, you know, Sprinkler and all these different things that I can use to communicate and collaborate and create with partners wherever they are. You don't need to have people sitting in an office every day from nine till seven. You don't need the overhead of desks and filing cabinets and receptionists and HR departments. What you do need is mature, smart, experienced, clever people who have the capacity when you need it and the expertise when you need it and you know that's kind of the other part of this equation we live in a world today where once upon a time maybe this is slightly cynical once upon a time in the advertising world if you were a freelancer it might have meant you were really talented but too difficult to work with and hold down a full-time job today (laughs) i think everybody i know who's a freelancer is a freelancer because they're very very good and they have been able to create enough demand for their experience and their skills that they get to work on their own terms and so some of these folks you know, I have one very dear friend who's been a permanent freelance for himself now for about eight years, and he'll take a project that might be a year. So he's almost like he's staffed somewhere, He'll take a project that might be three months, and he'll work incredibly intensely. And then he'll say, you know what? I made half a year's salary. I'm going to take a couple of months off. And so in that time that he's off, he gets bored. So I'd ring him up and say, hey, I've got this client. I only need you to do three weeks of work. I'll pay you X. You know, will you come and do it? And he said, yeah, that sounds like fun. I'll do it. So that's kind of, that was the model that we built and labeled ad hoc.
1: Hmm. And do you, so do you think the traditional agency model is in trouble?
0: Um, no, because I think there are some clients, some big clients, who will always want that safety and security and that knowledge. I mean, I, you know, I had a, an agency, a couple of agencies on board, one ad agency that's an amazing, awesome group of people David and Goliath here in L.A., we had them on a standard agency contract. We needed that because of the workload. I I didn't want to have to go out and find different people every week. But, you know, there were certainly times that, you know, had I had the license to go out to someone and say, hey, you two guys and a dog, let's say that's what they call themselves, (laughs) I got a project and you guys have done some work and I'm really interested in what you did. I'll pay you to work for us for three months and here's a brief and sit beside the guys at David and Goliath because they know our brand. And of course, that would mean a really honest conversation with the guys at the agency and say, look, this is not something that you need to be worried about. This isn't a threat. I just want to have some extra insight or some extra experience on this. And those guys, if any time, had I had that conversation, I never needed to, but had I had it, I'm sure they would have said, well, why don't we just bring those guys on for you? So I think the rigid agency model that was really invented in the 1950s is going to die. I think the traditional agency as we know it is going to die. But I think advertising agencies that are places that have smart people who can think strategically and creatively about solutions to business problems that might just happen to involve some form of communication to customers will always need them. It's just how they charge us and, and how those teams that they use are built is, is going to ebb and flow a bit, I think.
1: Uh, this that kind of segues into I ask each of our guests a few of the same questions. Is there anything in particular in the past few years that you've learned, maybe it was learning the hard way, that you know now that you wish you had known going into a project or starting a job?
0: (laughs) Gosh, uh, yeah, this thousand... How do I say one without incriminating myself? Um, (laughs) You know, I think, honestly, I kind of talked to it a bit beforehand. Really, that it's it's a kind of a discipline thing or a presence of mind thing, I think, to make yourself regularly look outside of the category you play in and look outside of the walls of the, the brand that you work on. You know, I mean, I, I kind of talked at the very beginning, I've been really lucky to work across a lot of different categories and brands. And for years I've talked about, you know, that was an advantage for me because I could see things and bring things from other places. But I've probably really only actually started to understand how to do that and, and the benefit that brings in the last three or four years. It's really easy. We all have to do lists. you know. I mean we used to joke at Jack in the box so we our days didn't start until 5:30 because that was when our meetings had finished. Yeah. Um, carving time out of account, again, the CMO that, that hired me at Jack in the box was amazing at this. He would say, this next, there's 90 minutes of my day and it might be one day every two weeks. We'd say these 90 minutes and my 90 minutes when I just go and look at social media and people go, what do you mean? You're going to sit and look on Facebook? And you go, yeah, but I'm going to look at Facebook for brands that are doing interesting things. And then I'm going to come to you and ask you why we're not doing that or how we can take this and do our version of that. I think having the discipline, creating the discipline to look outside and to lift your head up and to look around, I think is a really powerful lesson that I've probably really only learned in the last few years.
1: So you kind of touched on this with with Basecamp and and these long to do lists. Is there anything that you do in particular? Uh, any <laughs> routines to stay productive?
0: Yeah, you know that's something I've learned in the last couple of years as well. When I started, when when we started ad hoc probably four years ago, I read the most effective people, and I don't know if it's true. It struck a note with me. Are the ones who don't try and do a hundred things every day, they just try and do the three to five to seven things that are actually going to most meaningfully impact the business and making all of the other things things you get to and it's it's hard because so many of us get through our day and we go how was my day today i checked 20 things off my to-do list Woo, good day when in fact one of those things you might have checked off had you spent maybe half the day doing it and done 12 less of the things on your to-do list but spent more time on that one big thing that probably actually would have been a more effective use of your time for the business in the medium to long term it's just you know again looking up and, and looking around so i think. I'm a big to-do list writer. I do a to-do list at the start of every week. I redo it every day because I love crossing things off it, let's be honest. (laughs) Um, But I try really hard to prioritize it. So I'll kind of – I'll write down there might be 20 things that I think I need to get done this week or today. And I'll take 10 minutes and go, okay, what are the three? If if something happens today, if the president of the company calls me in and I have to sit there and we have to figure out some P&L stuff and we're there for hours in the finance department, what are the three things I need to make sure I get done if that happens? Or if I'm sitting here and, and I get a phone call that my kid's bitten someone at school and I have to leave and go and get <laughs> If I can only get three things done today, what are the three most you know, impactful things I can get done? I then rewrite my list with those three things on the top. And I think similarly, you know, it's really easy to answer email when it comes in. And email is a constant stream. It's just a flood. And I think if you can have the discipline and the calmness to be able to say, I'm only answering email you know, this 45 minute block in the morning, this half hour in the middle of the day and this 45 minute block in the evening. And if someone really, really needs me, they'll send me five emails or they'll call me or they'll text me or they'll come and find me. <laughs> I found that when I started allotting time to answer email rather than just answering them as it came in, I suddenly had hours of my day free to actually think rather than think that I had to be answering email.
1: Are there any publications or, or books on the industry that that you've read recently that have really shaped the way that you think?
0: There's a really great article on big data or data 2.0, series of articles, in fact, in Harvard Business Review, I think going back three or four years now, and they've kind of updated it a couple of times. And I remember reading it on a plane and just being suddenly, you know, I've kind of always liked research, but just reading how much data is out there and how to sift through it and how to channel it, and how to connect it and and, you know, how to find the data that matters and use it to help make smarter decisions that was really exciting then i read an article not long after that about uh how the folks at electronic arts had built a data science team inside the walls of electronic arts Hmm. because you know that's i think video games are an interesting thing because you know i I will confess i i play madden on my cell phone probably an hour every day usually (laughs) late at night when i'm awake and they capture data. They know my usage habits. They they get me to spend $5 in-game purchase with some frequency. You know, I share stuff through social media. So taking the data and then looking at – and so that again, there's a bunch – you could almost just Google Harvard Business Review big data and you'd find a series of articles. And I think similarly, if you just Googled electronic arts and data and research, you'd find another whole stream of articles about the intersection of kind of that brand and how they use data that was a period maybe four or five years ago that I read those two things in pretty close succession. I just really started to think differently about how we use research and how we find research and how we then mine the data that matters. I think that's a you know really powerful thing. And then I think there's just there are a couple of really interesting books I read that I come back to more when I think about brands. There's a great book that's just called The Long Tail. It's all about long tail theory and you know selling fewer of more things over a longer period of time ultimately is potentially more profitable and engages customers longer is one. I think there's a great book. This one's probably 15 years old called The Hero and the Outlaw. It's all about archetypes and brands. I found myself sitting in a room with the, the folks at David and Goliath, I don't know, nine months ago when we were, we were kind of going, okay, we have this character, Jack Box. He's been here 20 years. How do we modernize him? And it was actually one of the, the head of strategy at David and Goliath, a lady called Seema Miller, who said, let's think about it in terms of archetypes. You know, He's been historically the boss. What if we make him a superhero? What if we make him an explorer? How does that change how he speaks? How does that change how we present him? And so, you know, the book's 15, 20 years old, but it's one of those things that I find when we're doing brand architecture, brand strategy, persona work, I refer to it all the time. I think there's a, a guy called Simon Sinek who everybody loves. Sinek's done some interesting stuff on brand purpose, you know, what, why, what, and how, mm-hmm. or why, how and what. It's a little simplistic, and he kind of takes liberty a little bit with some of the brands that, that he says think a certain way, and i I think some of them he might not have worked with, so he's kind of maybe reading between the lines a bit, but I think the core of what he says is really interesting about how you create a purpose-driven brand. So those are a couple of things I've read that have certainly made me think and have stayed with me.
1: Well, this has been an incredible interview, and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn as much as I have. And really appreciate you coming on the show, Richard.
0: Well, no, thank you for having me. I was flattered to be invited. I love your podcast and I love what you do to make those of us who market food and restaurant brands listen to each other and share information and, you know, to my point, put our heads up and look around a little bit more than we might normally do. So thanks for having me on.
1: Oh, thank you. And where can people go to find out more about you and ad hoc?
0: I exist on LinkedIn or people can always just, you know, if someone wants to email me, they can find me. Really easy. You can just find me at, uh, at richardacran at gmail.com.
1: Perfect. Well, thanks again, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast. For interview transcripts or to download your free social media ebook, check out foodmarketingnerds.com.